Yeah, so we, we've just started into our lesson today, and we're talking about the fact that Jesus has passed through Galilee, that he's there um, with his disciples in Capernaum, but yet his focus is not there. He's not preaching to the crowds. He's moving on because he's now focused on, on going to Jerusalem. That's where his mission is going to be. His revelation of who he was was in Galilee. But the job that he has to do has to happen in Jerusalem, okay? And so this is all about his mission. And Jesus is taking these time, the next chapter and a half, to prepare his disciples. And we were just saying how they don't understand what Jesus means by rising from the dead, dying and rising from the dead. Why would they not understand? Why would they be afraid? Well, because the Messiah doesn't die. I mean, come on. We just established the fact in chapter 8 that you're the Messiah, that you're the one. And how is it that you're going to die? And the last time Peter took Jesus aside and tried to correct him on this issue, (laughs) Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So the second time Jesus says it, do you think they're going to be quick to respond? I ain't saying a word, man. I am not saying a word. I don't know what he means. I, it doesn't fit my box, right? God is saying something plainly, but it doesn't fit the box that I have about who God is and what he's supposed to do, right? Plus, he just saw him transfigured, and it's like, how can he die? How can that even happen? Yeah. You know, how can that even happen? And so you're, you're dealing with all of these different things, and I think it's difficult for the disciples, Right? I think it would have been difficult for all of us. Well, I kind of wonder if they're also feeling a little inadequate because they couldn't remove the demon earlier in in that story before. Yeah. Yeah. So there's limits to their power, and they're not quite there. Um, How come we couldn't do it? Yeah. So now we come to the crux of the problem. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argue about who is the greatest, (laughs) right? So Jesus is preparing his disciples, but his disciples are preparing as well, right? They're on their way to Jerusalem. They know that something has shifted. They can sense it, right? They've just been up at Caesarea Philippi at the base of Mount Hermon. Peter declared that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes, you're right. I am. We're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die and be raised from the dead. And we don't know what that means, but you are the son of God right? We understand that. We understand that you're the Messiah. And then Peter and James and John go up on the mount and they see Jesus transfigured before their eyes. There's no question now. This is the Messiah. Yeah, but that's only three of them. And they can't tell the others. Exactly. And now they're on their way to Jerusalem. And they're going like this. (laughs) right? They're elbowing their way to the front of the line. They're pushing to see who is the greatest, right? Because they know that 
Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem. We don't understand what all of this stuff that he's talking about, all this squirrely stuff that he's talking about means. But we do know that we're going to Jerusalem and the kingdom's coming. And we are numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Now, who's number one? Who's number two? And who's number three? Who's number four? And who's number five? They're jockeying for position because... Jesus is going to set up his cabinet. Who's going to be vice Messiah? Right? Who's going to have the seats of honor, the places of power, the positions of authority in the new kingdom? And that's all they can think about. And so now there's this strife, this this jockeying for position that's going on among them as they're moving toward Jerusalem. Um, And Jesus calls them on it. And they are... Silent. Who was the last group that were silent when Jesus asked them a question? Pharisees. The Pharisees. Do you remember chapter 3? Jesus comes into the synagogue, man with the withered hand. And Jesus says, is it, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? You tell me. And they were silent, right? Because what was in their hearts, which was, a conspiracy to do murder, was illegal and sinful. And so they kept their mouths closed. They didn't answer Jesus' question. And here we have the disciples. Jesus asked them a question. What were you arguing about on the way? And they were silent, just like the Pharisees, because what was in their heart was sinful and wrong, right? Because they're jockeying for position. They're acting just like the Pharisees. So Jesus has called them to be a new breed of religious leader. He's called them to be the shepherds of Israel as God would have the shepherds of Israel. But they're acting like the old shepherds. They're acting like the Pharisees. Their priorities are the same as the Pharisees. And so Jesus, so let's take this as the framing question the issue upon which all of this teaching is based. Because Jesus is going to, from this point, all the way to the end of the passage that we read, the end of the chapter, um, is in the same context, speaking only to the same audience, his disciples, in the house in Capernaum. And he's going to be dealing with this very issue, okay? So that frames our question. Verse 35, sitting down... Why is that significant? Teaching. Teaching. In that culture, when you sit if, as, a fair, as a rabbi, you are seated in, in a place of authority. That's the position of a teacher. And so he is seated and beginning to uh, proclaim um, important things that they are to, to learn. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And he took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Okay, there's some important things here. Let's talk about this little child. Who is the child? Speculation. Could be Peter's son, right? It's probably Peter's house, right? 
And so it could be Peter's child, son. Um, and, and so that's interesting, right? So here's Peter saying, I'm the greatest. And Jesus grabs his little son and sets him on his lap and says, you're wondering who's greatest? Okay, take a look at this little child. Now, we don't understand this as much because little children run our houses, right? Um, think about your grandkids, right? I'm a brand new grandfather. Only been a grandfather now pushing 11 months. Uh, but when he's in the house, he the king, right? He rules. He sits on his throne, strapped in, right? And whatever he wants, he gets. Whatever he says, we listen, right? Um, and, and everything revolves around him. That's our culture. That is not first century culture. First century Greco-Roman culture, first century Jewish culture. Children almost did not exist until they were pushing adulthood, okay? They were not the center of attention. They were not important um, why? Well, infant mortality rates were high. You had a slew of children and you hoped a number of them survived. Okay? And so you didn't put a lot of stock in the kids until they were old enough to see if they'd make it. I mean, that's, that's the practical side of it. Um, the reality of it. Uh, but, and, and you can imagine. I mean, imagine all of the sickness and things that hit our little kids today and how we deal with them and we have all this incredible medical attention none of that existed in the ancient world and there were no there were no protections from germs and disease and viruses and all of this and children are vulnerable and boom they died they just died you know we didn't understand they didn't understand anything that we understand about how the human body works how to protect a child effectively how to new how to provide nutrition for a child effectively and so children died um, anyway, um, Jesus says, choosing a child, uh, he chooses deliberately someone who is the least of these. Now, Jesus has been good at choosing least of these people, right? Um, he has chosen, he chose the Syrophoenician woman and held her up as an example, a Gentile, a woman. He chose the woman with the issue of blood, a sick, poor woman, uh, unclean. Um, he's done this time and time again. Um, and now he uses a child. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. This is one of those statements, those equality statements, right? Uh, Jesus equals God. Um, we see it a lot in the book of John. But this is one of the rare times we see it in the Gospel of Mark. Very clear statement of the equality between God and Jesus. Connecting them up. So, let's move on. Teacher, John said, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. And we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Wasn't that a great idea? And um, you can understand where they're coming from, right? We are the authorized, ordained disciples. We went up onto the mountain 
in chapter 3 and were selected by Jesus to be the 12. The 12 pillars of the new nation of the kingdom. We have the reins of authority that has been delegated to us by you. Right? And some Yehu out there is casting out demons in your name. And we told him to stop because he was not authorized. And Jesus says, don't stop him. For no one who, ex- who, who, who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Um, first of all, the person's doing a miracle. So what does that indicate? What does it indicate if they're doing a miracle? He's got God, God on his side. He's got, he is wielding God's power. Well, if God has approved him, who in the heck are you to tell him that he can't do what he's doing? Okay? The very authentication that has authenticated me as the Messiah has authenticated this person. So why would you stop him? You see, you are thinking structurally. You're thinking that everything flows top down from me to you, and it's an institution, and you control it. But that's not the way God works. God's kingdom is flatter than that. God's kingdom occurs out on the edges. God's kingdom occurs in unexpected ways. So chill and let God do what God's going to do because you're never going to understand it, control it, or contain it. You see what important lessons he's teaching them? Think about, we're going to jump ahead to the, gospel, to the book of Acts, even though it's not been written yet or happened. But a guy's going to come along named Saul of Tarsus who persecutes the church. And he's on his way to Damascus. And Jesus appears to him, knocks him off his mule, right? And speaks to him and calls him. And the disciples will have to accept him. He wasn't part of the twelve. He didn't come up with them through the ranks. He didn't walk with Jesus from the time of his baptism. But God is going to call him as a major leader, the most effective of the apostles, to extend the kingdom of God to the Gentile world. And he's going to come in an unorthodox way. Are you going to tell him he can't do what he's doing, even though Jesus has called him? Right? You see why this is such an important lesson that Jesus is teaching them before he departs. How does this feed into the uh, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma faith and healing? In my name, I, you know, I'm healing you. Well, that's a good question. I think we are quick to condemn and maybe we need to be a little slower to condemn and just let the kingdom be the kingdom We don't always have to understand everything that's different than us, but be a little slower to condemn it all the time. Um, There are a lot of things that, hey, I wouldn't do it that way. I don't necessarily track with, you know, the style, the philosophy. Uh, 
even the interpretation of Scripture. But who am I? Ultimately, this will fall, this will rise or fall based on whether God is in, in it or not, right? Gamaliel will later say, if God's in it, if God's not in it, it'll fall of its own, of its own weight. If God's in it, you don't want to oppose God, right? You don't want to get on the wrong side of God. So why don't we focus on unity and peace rather than focus so much on judgment and control? And I think this is probably an important lesson for us to learn, and the church has never been good at this. <laughs> We've always thought like John did right here. You know, I, I remember back when, what, 60s, 70s, Oral Roberts was just popping up on the scene. And I thought, like most people did, that he was a charlatan and wouldn't put any you know, credence to him whatsoever. And I looked back on it, and uh, this guy had an effect on thousands of people. And I've had an effect on maybe two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? He may not have been perfect, but God used him in incredible ways. Yeah. Right? I think the worst was when he said, I'm going to go on a fast and die if I don't get the money for something. I remember, do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, again, I don't agree with everything he did, but there's, there's a lasting... Impression, yeah. A last, lasting ministries that have been established, lasting impact in people's lives. Yeah. I am blown away by her faith. She's done a lot of wonderful things. And I, I just think that that's a ramification. Yeah, it's of, good. It's of, good. Of, of, of that's right. Christy worked there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So truly, verse 41, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. All right. And uh, so here's a little thing that you do that has a great reward. So sometimes the little things that we do are more important than the big things. Because if we do little things for the right reasons, God rewards those. If we do big things for the wrong reasons, then God says you've already got your reward. Right? You did it for the praise of men. If anyone causes one of these little ones... Uh, who believes in me to stumble, remember this child is still sitting on his lap, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Well, think about, you know, they're in Capernaum. And one of the things that impressed me the first time I went to Capernaum is that you see millstones everywhere <laughs> because they had a major industry of making millstones. They had a lot of bus basaltic rock, um, volcanic rock that was perfect for making millstones. And so they had an industry of, CEO, Weldon. Bye, Weldon. <laughs> so they would, 
they would make millstones. There's millstones everywhere in Capernaum. So you can imagine Jesus looking out the window at the, the guys chipping millstones away. And um, he says, you just take one of those millstones. It would be better for you if you took that millstone, you put it in your fishing boat, you went out in the middle of the lake, you tied a rope to it, and you threw yourself overboard. Because God is going to be, you know, you don't want to stand before God having offended one of these little ones. Okay? This is all mind-blowing to them. Because they didn't see children as important. They didn't see women as important. They didn't see Gentiles as important. They were a stratified kind of people. And they felt there are certain people that are closer to God and more important in society. And they're now fighting to get to the top of this new structure. And Jesus is blowing their minds. Okay? Now he goes to verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble... Cut it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Right? It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm that eats them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Okay? What is Jesus saying? Is he saying that we should... Um, maim ourselves? Not really. Not really. Well, I don't know. If, um, if we, there are two reasons we know that this is hyperbole, okay? Uh, This is hyperbole because, um, first of all, first of all, Jesus has already told us that sin comes from within, doesn't it? It's, it's what comes out of a man that causes him to be unclean, not what happens on the outside. So the washing of hands has no importance, right, to being spiritually clean. It's the stuff that's in you that makes you unclean. So how would cutting your hand off make you clean? You're still sinful on the inside. That's the first reason we know it's not true. The other reason we know that he's not speaking literally is because you only have two chances. (laughs) If your hand causes you to sin, you can cut one off. You can cut the other one off. But then you're still not dealt, you still haven't dealt with the sin problem. You can't cut the other one off because if this one is gone. (laughs) Well, maybe with your foot you could, and then you cut your feet off, right? And it's kind of like a bad Monty Python deal, right? And um, you're just a stump walking around, you know? Our churches would look quite differently if this was literal, right? Because we can't control sin this way. We wouldn't have eyes. Yeah, they wouldn't look differently. Well, they might look differently to non-believers. We wouldn't be able to see it. And so, um, what is Jesus saying? Stop doing the bad things. Your belief is far more important than your uh, physical Your integrity, your purity, your righteousness, your personal relationship with God is more important than external things, right? Than the things that you value the most in this physical world. There there are things we can cut off, right? 
in order to avoid sin. What are some examples thereof? Media. Media. Cut okay. down on the drinking. <laughs> you can cut down on the drinking. That would help. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, yeah, so take extreme measures to keep yourself from sin. So if you have a friend who causes you to sin, who causes you to gossip, who causes you to think bad thoughts, who causes you, who, who encourages you into sin, cut off that friendship. Stop messing around. Isn't there a fine line of if you have a friend that you're trying to bring to Cut it off, Jesus says. If they're leading you into sin, cut it off. If you're ministering to them, that's different. But if they're leading you into sin and it's causing you to sin, cut it off. Do the radical thing to live a life of purity. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, we come to this final concluding statement. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Aren't you glad he said that? Do you have any idea what he means? This is one of those really, really strange um, verses. And we look at it and we go, what, what are you talking about, Jesus? So first of all, we need to think about what in the world does salt mean? What could salt in their culture signify? Yes. It was an important commodity. Right? That's where we get our word salary is from salt. Okay? So I have a, um, a little excerpt from a, um, from, it's an article from a Bible dictionary and that talks about salt. Would somebody like to read that for us? We'll just take a few minutes and talk about it. Read the article on salt. had access to an unlimited supply on the shores of the Dead Sea. In the hills of salt, Jabel Ustam, a 15 square mile, 4,000 heck, heck acres elevation at the southwest corner of the Dead Sea. This area was traditionally associated with the fate of Lot's wife. Such salt was a rock or fossil variety, and because of impurities and the occurrence of chemical changes, the outer layer was generally lacking in flavor. The reference in Matthew 5, 13 is to this, to this latter, much of which was discarded as worthless. Salt was valued as a preservative and for seasoning food. It was often used among Oriental people for ratifying agreements so that salt became the symbol of fidelity and consistency. 
in the Levitical cereal offering, salt was used as a preservative to typify the eternal nature of the covenant of salt existing between God and the Israelites. The effect of salt on vegetation was to render the land infertile, thus the parched places of the wilderness where synchromony is with a barren salt land. <clears throat> Abimelech followed an ancient custom in sowing ruined <clears throat> Shechem with salt as a token of perpetual desolation. Elisha used salt to sweeten the brackish water of the Jericho spring. Newborn infants were normally rubbed with salt prior to swaddling. Under Antithicus, Epiphanius, Syrian imposed a tax upon salt, which was paid to Rome. Okay, so there's some interesting information about salt. Well, um, I want to jump down because of time. I want to jump down to this little picture of a little mountain. Think about the mountain of salt, okay? Because this is the one that talks most about this idea of salt and losing its saltiness. Um, so you can imagine there is the, the whole Dead Sea is a salt dome. It's a salt d deposit. And that's why it's so salty, okay? Not only does it collect salt because it has no outlet, but it's, it is sitting on salt. So it is super salty. And there is a big mountain at the base of the, of the Dead Sea that is a mountain of salt, okay? And so to get salt, which, as you said, was valuable commodity, they would go to this mountain and they would mine out salt. The problem is if you went to the surface of the mountain, you would taste the salt and it was flavorless because it was mixed with sand and dust and dead bugs and dirt and whatever, right? Because it's on the outside. Salt is a pretty stable chemical. It doesn't combine much, but there any chemical reaction or whatever is going on there, you've got the flavorless salt. So in order to get to the good salt, you got to dig down under the surface and mine out the pure salt from the middle of the mountain, okay? And so this is what they did in order to, to, get, to get salt. So my thought would be, here we have a number of questions, right? Uh, who is the greatest? Well, on the surface, in the world, we would say the most worthy. But on the inside, Jesus says, no, it's not the most worthy. It's a child. Right? Who is the least worthy? Who's the least one that you would expect? Who is first? The greatest? Jesus says, no, not the greatest, the least. If you want to be first, you need to be last and be servant of everyone. What's a cup of water worth? A cup of water's worth nothing. Unless you're thirsty. But if it's given... Out of a heart of offering to the Lord, if it's given for the right reasons, it has great value. It's of great reward. Is it important if a child is offended? Of course not on the surface. But on the inside, it bears great punishment. Tie a big rock donut to your neck and throw yourself overboard into the sea. 
who is mo- what is most important, the seen or the unseen, the physical or the not physical. Cut your hands off. My hands are important. Don't mess with my hands. Jesus says, cut them off if they cause you to sin. What is unseen is what's more important. Okay? So I think what Jesus is saying is that we need to live a salty life. We need to be different from the world. We need to not be like the flavorless salt that is contaminated by the world that is around us. We need to dig down deep. What is inside is different. And I'm calling you to a different kind of leadership, to a different kind of life. That involves having the attitude of the child, having the heart of a servant, doing small things for great reward, to be careful not to offend the weak, to focus on the purity of the kingdom, and to produce peace with others. This is a different paradigm for living, isn't it? It's a different paradigm for being a disciple. Um, There are some other interesting applications of salt. Salt is used in sacrifices. And if we are to live a salty life, our life, Paul says, is to be a living sacrifice, right? Seasoned with salt. Salt is an expression of the covenant that you have with God. And if we live a salty life, then we express the very covenant with God to the people around us. We are a living expression of the covenant of salt. And salt is a preservative. It protects meat, fish from decay. Um, We are to be a preservative, right? We are to be... In Matthew, it says the salt of the world, right? We are to be salt, uh, provide protection uh, from the dangers of this world. Um, So I think that this statement is, it's a weird statement. It's an interesting statement. But as we look at it, as we think about it, as we examine it in its own context, we begin to see what Jesus probably meant and how he strung these ideas together for the disciples. Does that make sense? Okay. So we're going to continue in this vein as we move into chapter 10. We're going to be, Jesus is going to be training his disciples as they're approaching Jerusalem because by chapter 11, we hit the triumphal entry. So chapter 10, Jesus is, these are his last will and testament to his disciples. This is the last opportunity to teach them before he's on mission bringing salvation to the world, okay? And so there's a lot of things here we're going to have to pay attention to. I, um, if you got a minute, I'll go and print that off. I tried twice to print it off. I'll see if I can print it off a third time, the, the kind of the study guide for, um, for the other, uh, lesson. So give me a second.
seeing much happening out there. Pardon? I'm not seeing much happening out there. Good. So I'm glad you can't see it. Other other than that flag is really blowing. Yeah. Well, you know, cold is cold, but it's, there's a difference between cold and cold with snow and ice. Oh yeah. Yeah. Of course, every time it gets really cold. I say to myself, now why was it I decided to leave Florida and come to Oklahoma? Uh, because they have hurricanes and sinkholes. What? They have hurricanes and sinkholes. And falling iguanas. <laughs> and falling iguanas. <laughs> 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 